Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in both cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we're going to be featuring Mike Lawson, and he'll be answering most of your important questions about fishing spring creeks and tailwaters. We're broadcasting live over the Internet as well as on a teleconference call. The link for the online broadcast is available on our homepage, which is www.askaboutflyfishing.com. That's www.askaboutflyfishing.com. And the call-in phone number, if you'd like to join us by phone, is 212-990-8000. And the PIN number is 6913-POUND. That's 212-990-8000. PIN number is 6913-POUND. So the show is going to be about 90 minutes in length tonight. During the first hour, we're going to be asking Mike Lawson the questions you have sent in over the Internet over the past weeks. And during the last 30 minutes, we will field your questions live over the teleconference call and over the Internet. And if you are listening to our Internet broadcast and you'd like to ask Mike a question while we're interviewing him, feel free. Go to Mike's section on our homepage, which is www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link below the description of Mike Lawson that says click here to ask Mike Lawson your most important question. Then we'll get that question live as we're interviewing. For those of you on our teleconference call, just wait until we open our lines, and then you can ask your question live directly to Mike. This broadcast is being recorded and can be available for playback on our website about one hour after the call ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website and listen to the broadcast at your convenience. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted in the Property of the Knowledge Group, doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we're going to talk with Mike Lawson about fishing spring creeks and tailwaters. Now, Don, how about a, a brief word from our sponsor? Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by the Federation of Fly Fishers, the country's premier fly fishing conservation and education organization. Often referred to as the FFF or the Federation, the Federation has members from all over the world, each of whom, by joining the Federation, has made a commitment to the betterment of the sport of fly fishing through conservation and education. The Federation's logo can be found on the homepage for askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on it and visit the Federation website at www.fedflyfishers.org. That's www.fedflyfishers.org. If you haven't already joined, give some thought to becoming a member of this fine organization. Thanks, Don. Uh, before we introduce Mike, we'd like to let you know about a great gift we have to give away tonight. Mike Lawson was kind enough to provide a copy of his recent book, Spring Creeks, for our drawing. Spring Creeks is a beautifully illustrated, 289-page, full-color, comprehensive work about fishing spring creeks and tailwaters. So if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so on our homepage. Again, it's askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link in our mic section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and then we'll be announcing the winner at the end of the show. Well, it's my great pleasure to give an introduction for Mike Lawson, our guest speaker tonight. Mike was born and raised in southeastern Idaho, and he has fished the local trout streams in that part of Idaho all of his life, particularly the Henry's Fork. In 1977, Mike opened Henry's Fork Anglers in Last Chance, Idaho, a full-service shop and guide service. And Mike has led fly fishing groups to such destinations as Alaska, New Zealand, Patagonia, Australia, Tasmania, and other locations including Christmas Island, Mexico, Belize, and the Florida Keys. His first book was published in 2000, Fly Fishing the Henry's Fork. 
This was co-authored with Gary LaFontaine and is an all-inclusive guide to fishing that great western trout stream. His second book, Spring Creeks, came out in late 2003. And Mike has also contributed to other books in, on fly tying and fly fishing, and he has written articles on fly fishing for many of the top fly fishing magazines. He's also featured in several fly fishing videos, and his latest is Tying Flies for Spring Creeks and Tailwaters. He's currently a pro staff member for Sage, Scientific Anglers, Columbia Sportswear, and Action Optics. He's an active conservationist. He's a founding member of the Henry's Fork Foundation, serves on the board of the Jackson One Fly Foundation, and he's a life member of the Federation of Fly Fishers and a life member of Trout Unlimited. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Mike Lawson to our show. Hi, Mike. All right, thank you. Well, Mike, um, let's get right into it, because our listeners want to know about fishing spring creeks. Uh, one of the questions came in, which is, is probably the most basic question, is what is a spring creek? Can you help define that, tell us what we're looking for? Yeah, I think real quick we could just simplify it, and it's a, any stream or river that gets its water source from under the ground, from an underground aquifer. Are these streams chemically different? Do they have different aquatic life, things like that? They, they are. You know, we need to generalize, you know, a little bit because every water is a little different. But what spring creeks have, because of coming out under the ground, the two major characteristics is they have a constant flow that really doesn't change, and they have a relatively stable water temperature. And the chemical makeup of the water is usually very high in mineral content and other nutrients that produce a lot of things that trout like to eat, aquatic insects and other uh, micro, small microorganisms and, and bigger thing, other things that live in the water all do well when the water is enriched with, with a lot of these nutrients. And one other thing that is a general generality, excuse me, is that they're usually pretty high in alkalinity, and that's the pH of the water. We have a term we call the pH factor in water, and seven, the number seven would be neutral, and water that is less than a seven is considered acid, a high acidity. But in uh, the other direction, greater than seven is an alkalinity factor, and generally the higher the alkalinity, the more bugs that can live in the water. So spring creeks are generally the highest in alkalinity of all the different types of water that trout live in. Do the animals that live in the water, uh, in the spring creeks that feed the, the trout, for example, do they differ significantly from the ecology of the freestone streams? They, they don't differ significantly. The main thing that we need to consider, and probably the biggest effect on that, is the water temperature. And you mentioned the term freestone streams, and we probably should qualify what that is. A freestone stream is a typical stream that gets its water content from either snow melt in the mountains or, or rainfall. And these kinds of streams are real high. When the snow melts, the, the water, sometimes they flood. And by late in the season, like in August, in the middle of the summer, the water is very low. And the other effect of that is a big change in water temperature from almost totally freezing. And so usually those streams do freeze over, but 
the water under the ice is not far from freezing, and then in the summer, sometimes that water gets really warm, at least for a trout stream. And the more temperature change there is, the more different varieties of aquatic life that can live there. And so what that means is because spring creeks maintain a relatively stable water temperature and there's not a lot of change from the coldest water to the warmest, no matter what time of year, that's going to really limit the diversity. So what you have is very high density of what lives in those streams, but not too much diversity. You don't have near the variety of different aquatic forms that you would have in a freestone stream. So like with stoneflies that need that aerated type water and so forth, would you find stoneflies in a spring creek? Yeah, stoneflies are not as common. Some spring creeks do support some pretty good stonefly populations, but usually they're little ones, little small ones. I know there's some spring creeks I enjoy fishing in the Black Hills of South Dakota, and they have some pretty good emergences of little stoneflies. In fact, those will be coming off in about another probably about another month, little, pretty small, 16s and 18s. But in general, spring creeks are not good habitat for stoneflies. And one reason is uh, the nature of many spring creeks, which meander in real slow water. But the biggest factor is water temperature. Stoneflies need those periods of warm, relatively warm water during the summer months to really grow. And even at that, those great big ones that we all love, the salmon flies that come out on all, most all of our big western rivers, they take about four years to, to get enough of those warm water days to reach maturity. And that will just never occur in a spring creek, and so consequently you're not going to find those kinds of insects. One of the questions that has been submitted in advance kind of addresses that, that very issue. How much do you use the season or the, the air temperature in selecting the flies that you might use when you first approach a spring creek? Well, a lot of that's going to determine what's, what's really going on on the water. The, the air temperature doesn't really have a lot to do with, with what's going on as far as the trout's feeding cycle. And, and whatnot, you know, they, about the only thing time that enters into it is when we're getting land-based insects, which are terrestrials, getting on the water, and of course then you've got to have warm enough weather outside, you know, for those to get on the water, but in general it's water temperature that has the, the biggest influence on aquatic insects, however, each of these different varieties of insects kind of has their own preference and their own characteristics and so just in again we'll speak in general terms little midges which are the smallest of the aquatic insect families really like cold water and they thrive in cold weather so they produce pretty good fishing all through the winter months just about any month of the year or about any day of any month of the year you can find midges coming off and the trout will often be feeding on them on the surface even if the air temperature is well below freezing. And then some of the little mayflies like to emerge early in the season and late in the season and these are one of the types that really like very cold water and they can survive 
out of the water when the air is cold too. So that's kind of what the factors are. And you know, any given stream, you just kind of have to look at it and have a little bit of knowledge of what particular important insects live in that stream. And one of the best ways to do that is just use the local experts. You know, there's a fly shop somewhere these days that's close to to what they call their home waters, and they're going to know when when the dates are when most of these insects emerge, and so you can plan accordingly. You had mentioned before that generally spring creeks are, are coming from groundwater and so forth. One of the questions was, are there particular geological features to look for when you're out trying to find spring creeks, like would an area that had caves be more conducive to spring creeks, or how would you go about looking for, for a spring well, creek? I don't know. I really don't know that answer on like an area that has caves or or whatnot. But in general, I'll just kind of what I've found in my research that especially I found when I was writing my book, Spring Creeks, is that spring creeks generally fall into three different categories, and one of those is a stream that that comes up through uh, rock, limestone rock. So we have limestone areas that if they're in areas like Pennsylvania is is one of the peak areas in the United States where there are a lot of limestone streams and there's also quite a few of them in the upper Mississippi Valley and Wisconsin and Iowa and Minnesota and Illinois and and that limestone the water percolates through that rock and finds weaknesses, you know, it goes into an underground aquifer and finds weaknesses in the surface and springs back out. So you have limestone areas. And the, another type are formed in volcanic areas. You know, when you have porous rock, huge areas of porous rock, like like where I live here in Idaho, on the Henry's Fork area, there's a big volcanic caldera. And that allows the snow melt and all the moisture that comes during the year instead of having somewhere to run off and join other streams and whatnot. It just kind of gets uh, percolating down through the rock and comes back up in the same way. So you have that second area, volcanic areas. And then the third type of spring creek is generally formed in, in a larger river valley. And what they are is, is the river portions of the river finds uh, some kind of weakness in the earth's surface and, and flows back under the ground and then finds another weak spot and flows back out. And we have a lot of these types of spring creeks in in Montana. The, the Yellowstone River Valley called the Paradise Valley has a lot of these. And there's some more over near Bozeman that form along the Gallatin River Valley. So that's essentially the kind of areas to look for. That doesn't mean all kinds of areas like this have spring creeks, but they're going to be more common in limestone areas, uh, volcanic areas, and in river valleys. Now, in, in England, is that the type? Is limestone the primary? Yeah, yeah, that's more of the limestone type water there. And in England, the, the limestone is very light colored, you know, and the water kind of gets a little bit of this characteristic, so they've, the common term for those English spring creeks is called chalk streams. And we've had uh, a number of questions that are inquiring as to where spring creeks might be located in multiple 
different states. Is there a, a resource to, to find that kind of information? And then another submission requested whether or not there is a pro propensity for the Spring Creeks to be public or private, because a lot of the most famous ones uh, seem to be private. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are good questions. I, I think that that is a, would be a great project is to uh, categorize all the known spring creeks in the United States and have a, a publication like a guide for those. And I, I'm honestly not aware of anything like that. There are some pretty good resources for regions and, and specific states, you know, just trying to find some of these that might be be good is, uh, well, first I'll mention some areas that I know of that are good places for spring creeks, and one is called the, the Driftless Region, which encompasses the upper Mississippi Valley. I mentioned this earlier, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Illinois, and there's a really good book about this area that's called Midwest Spring Creeks by a guy named Ross Mueller. And it's a really good book that's detailed and provides a lot of information. And there's a lot of these streams in this area. Another place that has a lot of spring creeks is in Pennsylvania. And the guy who's done quite a bit there is a guy named Charles Mack. And he's got a couple of books. He's written a lot of books, but he has one called uh, Trout Streams and Hatches of Pennsylvania. Another one's Mid-Atlantic trout streams and their hatches, and then he has one other, and it's called Fishing Limestone Streams. So that's a, that's a pretty good resource there as well. I don't remember the name of the book and the author, but there's one that covers the Black Hills. And out west, a book that's, that's pretty good, I think, is called Mastering the Spring Creeks by John Shuey. And he focuses mainly on just several western spring creeks and what goes on on those. There's a few things out there, I think. Another pretty good resource on areas that is the Fly Fisherman magazine, and especially the website, which is www.flyfisherman.com. How about the public and private issue? Well, I think there are a lot of good public spring creeks, you know, uh, I was, while I was thinking about that question, I live on the Henry's Fork of the Snake, and it's it's really a big spring creek, and it's all public, almost all of it, at least the access to it is. And our other good spring creek that's really world famous in Idaho is Silver Creek, and most of it is public as well. There's quite a bit of it that lies within the Nature Conservancy property. And I think about other spring creeks that, that I enjoy fishing that maybe aren't quite so well known. One spring creek in Oregon is called the Metolius River, and that's on national forest land. And you know, I'd say that there's some pretty good spring creeks that aren't private, but some of the better ones are. And it seems like the smaller ones, when you get these really small spring creeks, the fact that they're private is probably a pretty good thing because. That sort of limits the traffic on them, like some of the Montana ones. But I was just, as I'm answering this question, thinking about places I've been, the state of Missouri. Mike, can yeah. you hold that thought for just a minute? Yeah. 
why we go on a little break here, I want you to think about, because this is one of, one of the questions, what are your, your top ten spring creeks you've fished over, over the years? So can you think about that while we take just a, a little break? Okay. Okay, and uh, we'll just return here in just a minute, talk with Mike more about spring creeks and tailwater, so stay tuned, and Don, if you bring a word from our sponsor. The Federation of Fly Fishers tonight's sponsor has its headquarters in Livingston, Montana, near the famous Yellowstone River, just a short distance from Yellowstone Park. Each summer, the Federation holds a world-renowned fly fishing show and conclave. This year, it will be held July 26th through 29th in Bozeman, Montana, in the beautiful Gallatin River Valley. Often referred to as the conclave, this represents the finest fly fishing educational experience to be had in the country. Typically, over 100 programs, workshops, and demonstrations are yours to experience. Go to the Federation website at www.fedflyfishers.org for the details, including lodging and transportation. That's www.fedflyfishers.org. Okay, Mike, have you thought about the top ten? Yeah, you know, and, and what I'd like to mention, one thing I don't remember hearing a question yet, Okay. but the, the, the streams we call tailwaters, right. I think we ought to touch base on that because tailwaters are essentially man-made spring creeks. And these are streams that originate below a dam, and the effect of the dam has essentially the same effect that the ground has on the water that's within an aquifer, and that is constant flow, stable temperature, and enriched water. And those effects all generally encompass tailwaters. So when you factor in tailwaters and spring creeks, these are the best trout streams in the world, in my opinion. And you know, I'll list some. I'm sure there's more than 10, because there's a <laughs> lot of them. But I'm going to start right here at home. The Henry's Fork of the Snake and the South Fork of the Snake are real close to where I live. And these are, these are world-class streams, both of them. One's reasonably small, the Henry's Fork. The South Fork is a big river, but it's, it's probably the best tailwater river, not only in Idaho, but one of the best in the country. And then not too far away is Silver Creek in Idaho. And if I look at Montana, I'm just going to name a few, but the Missouri River is like a huge spring creek up uh, near Helena, pretty much the stretch that flows between Helena and Great Falls. There's several dams there that produce some outstanding spring creek fishing. The Beaverhead River, which is not too far from where I live in Montana, is another really good tailwater. The Bighorn River is, again, another just like a big spring creek. And then the actual spring creeks, Montana is loaded with those, and I mentioned those earlier in the Paradise Valley and some near, that's near Livingston, and then some others in the Gallatin Valley near Bozeman. And then when we look at Wyoming, and that's just over the Tetons from me, one of the great flat, uh, excuse me, one of the great spring creeks flows through the National Elk Refuge, and that's called Flat Creek. And again, it's a public spring creek. And then another good tailwater in Wyoming is the North Platte River. Another river is the New Fork. It's really not a, a tailwater, but it's kind of like a, a spring creek. In Utah, two fantastic tailwaters, which is the Green River and the Provo River. In Colorado, it may be the best tailwater state in the country, and 
I'm just going to think of the two rivers I fish the most there, and that's the frying pan and the south Platte. So those are just some here in the west that are close by. If we branch out a little bit, there's some good spring creeks in Oregon. California probably has the biggest spring creek in the world, which is the Fall River. So there's plenty of great water. You need more than a lifetime to really sample it all. <laughs> Now, out in, the, out in the Midwest and, and Arkansas and so forth, they've got some, uh, uh, I guess, their tailwaters as well that, that are, in essence, a spring. They do, and, and they're world class. The, the White River is probably the most famous, and then there's some other ones there. They're, oh, if you center around uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, you're, you're just set. Well, not Hot Springs. What is it? Hot Springs is in South Dakota, I'm thinking about, but... Uh, yeah, there's a hot springs in Arkansas. As okay, well. well maybe I'm I'm there then. But I know I fished there. I just can't remember exactly. But it was really fun and very rich streams. In the east, the Delaware River, the northeast is is another one of these tailwater rivers that's comparable to our western tailwaters. And then there's also some in the southeast, which are in Tennessee and North Carolina, are probably the two best areas. So basically, I mean, we've got uh, listeners tonight from all over the country, including, I think, Great Britain and Canada and so forth. So this, this really should be a, a Spring Creek about close to anybody's home uh, when you start thinking about it, right? Oh, yeah. Sometimes you have to, you may have to drive a little bit, but even if you're living out in the middle of the Midwest where you wouldn't think there's a trout stream close by at all, there are. You know, you can go to the, I mentioned the Black Hills and, and this area you mentioned in Arkansas, and then in Missouri there's some wonderful spring creeks. That some of them are sort of put and take. In other words, they stock those. They're, they're in their state parks, and they're, they're really big spring creeks, but there's some littler spring creeks that, that just have wild fish, too, in them. They're really beautiful little streams. Let's talk a little bit about insect life. Again, we, you did mention that. That, you know, you mentioned mayflies, you mentioned midges. So it's sounding like uh, most of the, the normal insects that we're used to are, are in spring creeks. Do you find some insects that aren't normally in a free-strown river that more suited to, for instance, lake fishing or something like that? Where well, water's uh, not not too much. You know, they're, they're different kinds. I guess I'd put it that way, or different species like some mayflies thrive in really fast, high oxygenated water, and they're they're very different than the mayflies that live in slow-moving spring creeks. But in in essence, they're still mayflies, and they have pretty much the same life cycle and biology and everything. So they're a lot the same. But in general, I think that uh, from what research I've done is that midges make up the highest populations of trout foods in in uh, spring creeks and tailwaters. In other words, they're the most prolific, and they're followed by mayflies, caddisflies, and lastly, stoneflies. And again, the water temperature is going to dictate that. Some spring creeks and tailwaters are so cold that the only aquatic insects that can live there are midges. And as, they, as the temperature band widens a little, that's going to allow more different types of aquatic life to live there. As we get further down from the source and we start getting closer to, to a free-strown type of environment, you're, 
your insect life's going to change more. That's exactly right. Yep, you'll start having more, more diversity, but but you may start losing a little bit of the densities that you find in in the upper reaches in a spring creek. What about like damselflies or dragonflies that you normally think of as a lake type insect? Do you find those in? Yeah, you know that. Waters? That's the other another thing when you get into the what springs are like spring creeks are like relative to other types of streams they're they're a lot like lakes in some ways with the real slow moving water and frequently there are a lot of back sloughs and and backwaters and and that's usually where you find these insects and there there are a lot of spring creeks where they're very prolific i can think of some great fishing i've had on silver creek with damsel flies Mike, we have one question that sort of addresses these issues that you've just brought up, and I guess there may be a distinction between true spring creeks and tailwaters, but oftentimes we think in terms of fishing tiny patterns, midges and that sort of thing, but we generally hear big fish look for big things to eat. Are we thinking wrong in terms of using midges for big, big trout in, say, tailwaters? Or should we be spending more time with sculpin and minnow annotations and that sort of thing? Well, uh, in answer to that, you know, big food forms are, are really important for trout in all types of water, and, and certainly spring creeks are, are normally loaded with, with sculpins and, and other types of forage fish, leeches, crayfish, and the trout really do feed on those, and they'll, they'll hunt for those kinds of food forms when they're available, but the difference is is there is so much of the other type of food that's available that the trout will feed on that as well. So, you know, if you want to find a certain spring creek that you like to fish and you want to try to catch the biggest fish in that water, then I would load up with the big game stuff and go after them, you know, with streamers and, and maybe leeches, but those same fish will frequently feed on little tiny size 20 or smaller midges, and I think that's one of the real attractions to a spring creek. So you really never know <laughs> what what they're hungry for. Um, it's it's an opportunistic situation, isn't it? That yeah, it, it is. Here, then, gonna... A lot of it is up to your your personal preference too. It's like uh, you know, I I can really relate to that where I live right here on the Henry's Fork and. And I know that if I really want to catch a fish that bad and go up in even the most difficult part of the river to fish, which is the Harriman State Park, I could put on a leech and just go out there and work my way down the river, and I probably would be able to hook a real nice fish or two. But that's not near as enjoyable to me as trying to go out and look for a, a big fish that's feeding on the surface. And that's what I prefer to do. And that's what I love about the Henry's Fork is, you know, you've got every option there. So when you approach spring creeks, do you, do you find yourself doing more dry fly fishing or, or nymphing? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, what I've found from a lot of experience and also quite a bit of research is that I think that trout probably feed a lot more on midges than dry flies, and I mean a lot more, maybe maybe 90%. Even. But the difference is that a lot of those nymphs are going to be taken 
at the surface or right in the surface. And so when I think about fishing nymphs, a lot of the nymphs I fish are really emergers and 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 cripples and nymphs fished right in the surface film or just under the surface film. So if I factor that in, and instead of just thinking of the term dry fly fishing or nymph fishing, if we could look at are we fishing on the surface or down under the surface, then I find if I qualify it that way, I I probably fish about 80% of the time on the surface, but a lot of that time I'll be using little nymphs right in the surface film. Under the surface and so forth. Mm -hmm. How about structure, uh, Mike? We have a question actually regarding the uh, the tailwater on the Missouri, as you mentioned. Uh, they're wondering, where do the fish hold in a nondescript tailwater like the Missouri? And I guess we could expand that and, and say, how do you evaluate structure in tailwaters and in, in spring creeks? That is a great question, and I can really relate to that because there's a lot of the Henry sports that's just like that. And I fish the Missouri quite a bit. And those fish can virtually be anywhere. And uh, the, generally what they do is when they're feeding, they're out in the open. And when they are not feeding, all they have to do is just tuck under the edge of one of those moss banks or, you know, the aquatic vegetation in most cases produces most of the, of the protection and the, the structure they need to get out of the current and, and relax and rest. So those kind of streams are really difficult when the fish aren't out and feeding to fish because of all the aquatic vegetation. And a lot of times, rather than just uh, start blind fishing with a nymph or, or a dry fly, I just try to find areas that might hold some fish that are still on the feed. I, I guess my mentality is... If they're feeding, they're going to be out, and if they're not, they're not going to be accessible to really get a, a nymph to them very easy. So I'd look for riffle areas mostly. Anytime you get some riffles, the trout like to hold in there and feed, and I've especially found this true in the Missouri. And then edges, you know, that that word edges seems to work everywhere, whether it's salt water or or any uh, river situation, and that's an edge where you have two currents coming together, where you have a little bit of a drop-off in depth, and you might have a little bit of gravel and it'll drop off, or, or this might be an edge that's like along the bank where you have a, a little bit of an undercut. So I kind of look for those areas, too. Are there any effective ways to fish those moss banks that you referred to? One of our questions specifically inquired if there's if there's a way to fish uh, the pockets in them and that kind of thing? The best method I've found is to use a two-fly system, and that's use a, a dry fly and then put a nymph as a dropper. And that way you can adjust the depth pretty easy. And one thing that I do sometimes with real little flies is I don't even tie the dry fly on. I just run the tip it through the eye of the, of the dry fly, and then I tie a blood knot or a barrel knot, and then I drop the weighted fly off, depending on how deep I'm trying to fish it. And the dry fly then is just sort of swinging free. And if a fish takes the dry fly and you tighten up, that's going to pull the knot up against the eye of the hook, and you'll still hook the fish. So that's one method that I've found that 
it works pretty good. But but all in all, the uh, success rate's going to drop way off if the fish aren't feeding on the surface when you're trying to fish that kind of water. I think it's just one of those situations that is going to be hard to catch fish. Well, it's, uh, it's time for us to take a break here again. So, Don, can you again give us a, a word from our sponsor? The Federation of Fly Fishers is currently sponsoring an international fly tying competition to support conservation and education. There are two facets to this competition. First, the world championship in which designated fly patterns must be tied. And these patterns are judged by famous fly tires like Dave Whitlock, Alan Gretchen Beatty, Ron Alcott, Stu Apte, Bob Clouser, Bob Jacklin, Bill Blackstone, and others. There's a parallel competition called the People's Choice Competition. In this event, tires can submit any pattern they like within defined categories. These are posted on the website and voted upon by the public. Check out the FFF website for details, uh, www.fedflyfishers.org. That's www.fedflyfishers.org. Mike, we've talked about uh, locations and a bit about strategies, identification of the creek. Maybe we could talk again some more about techniques. I, I just saw a question here that it's kind of the reverse of what, what uh, Don just asked you, which is I normally fish big rivers and fill out of places on a, on a small creek. What techniques would I use on a small creek? I think that generally people that fish big rivers, and I fish a lot of them too, I'm usually trying to cover a lot of water. And frequently, I'm not fishing to a specific fish, but I'm fishing to a part of the river. And, uh, and that is usually not the way you fish a spring creek. So you kind of have to shift gears a little bit and get, get a little different mindset. And spring creeks usually have very high populations of trout, and they're consequently pretty concentrated because the streams are small. And so if you approach those like you would a bigger river just trying to really cover the water, you're generally going to start spooking some fish. And in this kind of a tight environment, when you spook one trout, it creates a chain reaction and trout are going scattering everywhere. So that's really what you want to focus on is to try, in the process of trying to catch a fish, is to not spook the rest of the fish in the stream. And so the best tactic is to try to have your mindset on finding individual fish. And even if you see a lot of fish, whether they're rising or whether you're looking at them under the water, you want to try to pick an individual trout out to cast to and try to really spend some time determining how to approach either the fish or the fishing area because you can't always see fish in spring creeks either. But you're just looking at a lot tighter environment, so uh, you want to move slow and you want to have a lot of patience. Approach should be real calculated. That reminds me um, of a story I read in your book on spring creeks, where you talk about a, a I think it was a great blue heron that was fishing. Yeah. And what yeah. you learned from that? Could you could you kind of tell that story a little bit again? Well, the point I was trying to make in the book about that is the fact that that I think trout have such keen eyesight, and I've studied trout, and they see color, and they see very well, and their peripheral vision is fantastic. And, and while they do have a little bit of a blind spot directly behind them, I think for an angler it's just virtually impossible to 
approach a trout without being noticed. And I think that, and I use that blue heron because they're one of the most efficient predators, and they're big, and they're tall, and they catch their prey strictly by stealth. And I think that the trout don't really notice blue herons as being a danger. They, they see them there, but see, trout are used to, to, usually there's vegetation, there's bushes and trees and everything along the stream bank, and you know the wind blows and moves those things. A lot of times animals walk up and down the bank, and, and so I think trout have a wariness of their predators, and most of that comes from above, and nothing startles a trout more than, than some kind of a quick move or, or some unusual vibration or noise along the bank. And great blue herons just seem to be able to use such stealth that they can approach a trout until they can get right on top of them, and, and they're very efficient predators. They get a lot of trout. I think we can learn from them as anglers and try to emulate a lot of those same things that herons use to get their prey. Yeah, you, uh, you described it as how they, you know, one foot at a time, very slowly entering the stream, and then, I, I mean, each movement is carefully orchestrated. I, I started thinking about that myself, about when I've watched herons and how slow when they move and so forth, but it seems to me that those fly fishers don't move that slow. <laughs> well, you know, the thing we do, is, and, and it's hard, is we get the adrenaline rushing, and we, especially when we see feeding fish, and, you know, like, I, it happens to me, too. I can... I can be practicing out on my lawn, and I can make beautiful pinpoint casts, and as soon as you put a big trout out there in front of me, then, you know, it seems like my arm goes to, my casting arm goes to spaghetti. So that's kind of what we have to fight against, being human. You kind of talked to this a, a bit more, and, I, and I'm getting the picture that you do a lot of hunting, so to speak, and, and stalking of fish. Uh, one of the questions was, when you approach a spring creek and don't see any fish rising, what do you do next? Is that when you eat your sandwich, or, 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 or what, what would you do next? <laughs> well, you, no, you, you know, you're, you're not always going to have fish rising. Generally, you're, on a typical day on a good spring creek, you'll have some of the best feeding activities usually going to happen in the morning hours. And then things are generally pretty slow the rest of the day till the evening. And, you know, you've got some options that a lot of times... Maybe the first thing we we do is start fishing the water, and we may have to start doing that because even if, you know, my second favorite technique, I, number one, I like to see trout rising. I love that. But if I can't see them rising, I like to spot the fish in the water, and you can do that. On Most spring creeks are clear, and, and if you're real careful, like we're talking about the heron, and move slow and look ahead of you if you can see in the water and you can see trout, and then you've got an opportunity to catch them because you can spot them. But as the sun gets high, and in the afternoons especially, generally you start getting some breeze coming up, and you just can't see into the water either. So your only option then is going to be to cover the water, and so you want to look for where you think the trout are going to be holding. So you look for the best holding areas. And what I used in my book is that to find the best place for a trout to live is to understand what their requirements are 
to live. And, and trout need basically three things. They need food, they need protection from their enemies, and they need a place to rest because they just don't want to be fighting the current all the time. And the best holding areas are in the water are the areas that provide all three of those opportunities for trout, rest, protection, and still an opportunity for food. So that would be like an undercut bank, a, you know, maybe a submerged rock, some structure of some kind, changes in depth of the water. And then the next step then is to fish that water. And, and if there are no fish rising, that doesn't mean they still won't come to the surface. So I might try just fishing some attractor dry flies or maybe a terrestrial dry fly, something like that. Or I might want to fish a nymph and use an indicator. And the third thing is I might start putting on a, a streamer or, or a leech pattern, a woolly bugger, and start working those, those holding areas to try to hook some fish. One of the uh, questions was uh, specifically on hoppers and ants, and the question was, what is better, drift a fly close, close to an undercut bank or drop the fly right in the middle of it? Uh, I've caught fish both ways. I'm looking to increase percentages on the first <laughs> Boy, that, that sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had all the, exactly the same thing, and, and I don't know. Honestly, I've caught fish both ways myself, and that's, uh, you know, there's, when you're specifically thinking about hoppers, sometimes what triggers a trout to slide out from under his protection of an undercut bank is if he hears that hopper hit the water. So in that case, you, you want to cast right into that bank and, and try to alert the fish. But sometimes it's better to get, you know, the fly upstream and let the current feed it back under the undercut. And I think the best way I'd answer that is, is to look at the individual situation. You know, a lot of undercuts have overgrown vegetation, and especially a big, wise brown trout might be packed way back in there, and it's just really hard to get it in there any other way than just feeding the fly in. But that may not be enough to get the fish's attention. So sometimes I use a, a sidearm cast and try to skip the fly bounce the fly in there and some hoppers you know i tie a hopper called henry's fork hopper with a bullet shaped head and it it's pretty aerodynamic and you can make a sidearm cast and kind of bounce it in there and another thing i do is if i'm going to feed the fly in sometimes i like to give it a little twitch just before i think it's where the trout's going to really see it close Sometimes I think if you twitch the fly right on a fish, it'll spook the fish. But if you can twitch it just before it's getting into the prime holding water, a lot of times it'll get the fish's attention and, and have him watching for when the fly drifts in there. So I guess that's the best way I can answer that question. Mike, you've, you've kind of mentioned some of the, the senses of the, of the trout, and I've got a few questions kind of in that regard. One comes from... Gary in Missouri, uh, indicating that he avoids using solvents like head cement on uh, subsurface flies because he is concerned there may be a chemical smell. What do you think of that? I, I've never been one that subscribes too much to the to the fish smell. You know, I uh, now I don't want to minimize the the sense of smell that trout have, which is very keen, extremely keen. But I think trout 
use their senses a little different than we do. And, you know, all animals use their senses different. In fact, many kinds of fish use their senses a lot differently. But when it comes to trout, of, of all fish, they're probably more inclined to feed, find their food by sight, by seeing the, their food. And then they will move to the food and take it to confirm with the other senses. They'll feel it, smell it, and taste it. And then if it's right, they'll, they'll eat it. If not, they spit it out. And you see trout all the time taking little twigs and different things and spitting them out and whatnot. But, but I think if you have something that's really strong, like a real strong, uh, you know, smell of some types of head cement, that maybe could put the trout off just as he is starting to take it. And I'd probably watch that sort of thing. But if I see trout that are coming, and maybe trying to get right on the fly, and then they refuse at the last minute too much. Maybe there is something to that, you know. So I think there is a uh, a head cement that's made that has a uh, has a scent to it mm -hmm. um, that I've heard about. Now um, you mentioned color vision and that sort of thing. How do you dress when you're fishing a let's say a small spring creek where you're where you really stand a chance of of standing out? Well, I generally don't want to dress in really bright colors. In fact, I got a couple of letters that came in that were people commenting on my book in some of the magazines. And one guy, particularly, I remember said, well, you don't practice what you preach because a lot of the photographs in the book, and especially the one right on that same page, I'm wearing a bright red shirt. <laughs> but I also mentioned in the in the book that if you're, really want to try to get on the cover of a fly fishing magazine and wear a bright red shirt or something real bright because that's what photographers want. And a lot of the pictures in my book are because I was out, you know, to get pictures of, of me, I was out with a photographer that was getting the pictures for some other thing. But in reality, there's really not any point to that. You're generally going to be better to blend in, but you got to realize where you are, too. Like some little spring creeks, especially in the east, with they usually have a lot of streamside vegetation, trees and willows and overhanging. And so, you know, I'd want to blend in and wear some kind of green or something. But where out west, a lot of our big open rivers, like the Missouri and the, the Henry's Fork and some of these areas, then the trout are going to be seeing you against the, the sky. And so then I would be more inclined to wear something kind of light colored, you know, maybe a light blue or something. But then there's been a lot written and talked about with regard to fly rod colors and line colors and all that. My my friend Gary LaFontaine always sanded his, his rods down. He'd take a beautiful new rod and he'd take steel wool and sand it down, and he always used... Uh, dark colored lines and, and whatnot and I I never have really subscribed to that very much because I just think that trout can sense us so well, their their vision is so good that they're gonna see the movement of a dark line or or a, a, a fly rod that's sanded just about as well as anything else. And I like to see my line. Of course, I'm getting into a different subject here, but I want to keep that fly line out of the trout's window of vision if I'm 
false casting, and I can do that best if I can see the line. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to kid myself. I think that trout can sense me no matter what I'm wearing and no matter what my equipment is. So, we got to be really careful. In I think a lot of the things we spook trout is rather than they see us, they sense us before we ever get close enough for them to see us. Well, Mike, I have to compliment you on your on your Spring Creeks book. Uh, it, it's a beautiful book. It's one of the nicest illustrated books I've ever seen. Uh, so many color photographs. One of, one of the things that, that you do mention in your book, is you talk about feeding rhythm of a trout. And, and I don't remember reading that uh, anywhere else. But could you speak to that a bit? Because I think that that might be a problem we don't know we really have. Time. Well, yeah, and, and that that has been written about. That one of my heroes, as far as fishing authors, was a guy named Vince Marinero, and he wrote two books. One was called The Modern Dry Fly Code in, in 1950, and about 10 years later he wrote one called In the Ring of the Rye. And he covered this subject pretty extensively, but what trout do is they, they just inherently maximize their energy uh relative to energy expended and, and energy taken in through the calories from their food. And when you picture a trout feeding, they, they really aren't swimming at all. They just It's just the structure of their fins. They tilt their fins and, and the current lifts them to the surface and then they tilt their fins forward and the, it drops them down. And they, It's just almost, if you can think of a bird of prey that's just soaring on the wind currents and you know they just do it so effortlessly and a trout is essentially doing about the same thing with current flowing over its fins and so as the food becomes more intense so there's so much food on the surface the trout will get into a feeding rhythm because every time he rises there's likely to be food there and so they, they get into a pattern, and you can just about calculate that, like feeding rhythm. I, I like to watch a trout, and each trout might be different, but you might determine, well, every, every three seconds he's coming up, which would be a pretty intense feeding. But when that happens, uh, no matter what fly you're using, if it isn't arriving in that fish's window about the time he is, going to be making his next rise, he's not going to see the fly. So you really want to study how individual trout feed. And it's, again, just uh, advice I've tried to relate throughout the book, and that is to be patient and observant. That Those hours, which turn out to be hours, if you start adding all the minutes you spend observing trout, those are going to pay off. Uh, and you're probably going to catch more fish than you would if you were just wading and casting all the time. Well, great. Well, it's time now, Mike, to uh, to take a few questions from our listeners out there. So we're going to break for just a second. Don, can you bring us word from our sponsor? And then when we come back, we're going to open the phone line, see if anybody's on the phone. If not, we're going to uh, use the Internet and field your questions online. Already some questions have been coming in here while Mike's been talking. So, Don? Well, the Federation of Fly Fishers needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. It's involved in the Mangrove Recovery Initiative in Florida, the Trout of the Desert Southwest Initiative to help the recovery of rare native trout, 
the Endangered Fisheries Initiative and the Striped Bass Game Fish 2006 Symposium in Foxborough, Massachusetts, just to name a few. The Federation recently won a National Conservation Award for its efforts. To continue this great work on behalf of all fly fishers, the Federation needs to increase its membership. It needs more concerned anglers willing to join in support of such projects, and by doing so, give something back to the sport that has given so much to each of us. Join the Federation of Fly Fishers today and help support their fine work. Hey, it's time for our live question and answer session, and during this time, you'll be able to ask questions over the Internet or on our teleconference call. If you're listening to our Internet broadcast and you'd like to ask a question of Mike, just go to our homepage, www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link below the description of Mike that says, click here to ask Mike Lawson your most important question. Fill out that little form, submit it, and we'll see it come in here online to uh, be able to transfer those calls to Mike. Now, uh, if you want to call in by phone and, and talk to Mike directly, dial 212-990-8000 and then enter PIN 6913. That's 212-990-8000 and then enter PIN 6913. If you're on the phone already, just hold on and we'll open up the lines in just a second. But before we do that, before we open up the phone lines, we need for all our telephone callers to mute their phones so we don't get any background noise. I don't know how many people we have out there, but you never know what's going on in the background. So we'd like you to all mute your phones now by pressing star six. So if you're not going to ask a question immediately, press star six now. And then when you do want to ask a question, just press star six again to unmute your phone, and then you'll be able to ask a question. Uh, after you're done asking your question, again, do star six to, to mute yourself out. So it's just a toggle back and forth, star six to open up and close yourself down uh, with the muting. So, Don, can you check and see if we have any questions from the telephone callers first? Sure will. Okay, do we have anybody on the telephone lines right now? If you're trying to ask a question, press star six to unmute. Anybody on the line? Mike. Roger Myler here. Hi, how are you doing? Fine. Uh, ask, answer a question. I've caught trout in the middle of the winter on hoppers uh, many, many times, and they haven't seen hoppers in three, four, or five months. Do you think that makes any sense, or does that make the trout any less smart, in your opinion? <laughs> I think it makes them probably more smart. I, I You know, I've never really... Uh, tried a hopper before in the middle of the winter, but, you know, I think uh, when you look at, at trout and look at them in detail, I think it's steelhead, you know, and steelhead are moving into rivers, and all the biologists say they really don't feed, they'll be in the rivers for months, yet that's a lot of times what they catch them on, and they just have things imprinted on their mind, and I also think that, that trout a lot of times take things because they just look like something to eat. So I think that's great. I, I've never tried that. That sounds pretty interesting. Well, I've made a habit of trying to fish on New Year's Day every year and take a trout or two on hoppers, and I've never failed yet. Now, and I fished the, white, where, I fished where, the white River. Okay. The White River Yeah. in Arkansas. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. I think, you know, I, I knew I'd learn a few things tonight, <laughs> and that's one of the things that that I have. I'm going to try that. Boy, it's it's. I guess it's pretty easy to teach an old dog new tricks. Then. Okay. <laughs> well, look, I'm I'm older than Mike is. I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a uh, I've got a uh, Don. Would you like to mute out there for us? Okay. Yep. I've got one that came in um, uh, on email here. 
Looks like this might be a friend of yours, Kelly Gallup. Mike. Yeah, I know Kelly well. He says he heard that you've you've really done well fishing streamers in areas that are not generally considered streamer water, i.e. the ranch. Is that true? It's very true. Yeah, I'll just qualify that a little bit. You know, I never used to fish streamers too much in the ranch, and and until I actually observed fish chasing minnows, and and I started out. This was years ago, but I started out seeing. Some big old thrashing rises, you know, where they just go busting across the surface, and and I started noticing that a little more because I thought, what's going on? I I used to think it was maybe just a couple of big trout chasing each other and jockeying for position, you know. But uh, then a few times I actually saw little bait fish flying out of the water with a big trout on their tail, and I realized they were taking minnows and. And, you know, just to go on with that, the biggest trout I ever saw caught in the ranch was caught on a streamer. And my son, Sean, and a kid working, he was a kid then, Rob Van Kirk. Now he's a doctor at Idaho State University, and he does most of the research out here on our streams in southeastern Idaho. But I was floating the river with my family, and I, we floated over a giant trout. I mean a giant trout that was in with a bunch of whitefish. And the next day, Rob and Sean were going to go fish down there. And I told them exactly where that fish was. And they, they knew from my description. And they went down there. And a good mayfly hatch came off. And a bunch of fish were rising. But they, they didn't see any sign of that big trout. And finally, Rob Van Kirk put a, a streamer on, a zonker. And he caught the fish, and he has a nice photograph of the fish. He released it, but that fish weighed at least 10 pounds that he caught on that on that streamer. So streamers do work. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've got another uh, one that came in. It's a question we didn't get to earlier. It's actually been asked uh, several times now. What about your tippet size? Like, what, what, what's your? How do you rig up on on your your leader and tippet and so forth? Is there Place yeah, you know, I get asked that question a lot in our fly shop, and and to try to have a basic rule, I like the rule of three. And as far as deciding what size tippet should you use relative to the fly, and so that means if you have a size uh, 16 fly and divide it by three, that's 5x, because, you know, you just want to round it down or up depending and if you have a size 20 fly then uh, that's going to be 6x and and that generally works pretty good you know if you it, it's not always the the way it is but if you're just trying to think okay what's a good start use that rule uh, then you might have some other variables and a lot of that's going to be the current and you can if you're getting a lot of drag on your fly in other words, you're having trouble getting it to make a natural drift, then you might want to drop down a tippet size. And on the other end of it, if you're having a little trouble with your accuracy, uh, you might want to use a bigger tippet size. I think that happens sometimes with big flies. You know, a lot of times I've seen anglers fishing a size 10 fly with 5X tippet, and that 5X just doesn't have enough to turn that fly over sometimes. So, you know, you want to you wanna try to factor that in. And another thing you can do is lengthen the tippet. You know, sometimes 
like if I'm fishing on the, the railroad ranch or the Harriman Park and I'm using little dry flies and the currents are particularly tough and I just can't seem to get that right drift on the fly and I'm using already using 6X tippet, I don't really want to go to 7X because it's really difficult to land a fish without just wearing them out. So you can also extend your tippet. If you, if you make your tippet longer, then a lot of times that will help you achieve a drag-free drift, too. Well, you I talked know. about in your book about micro-drag. Can you, can you kind of go further with that? Well, yeah, micro-drag, that term micro, it just means that the fly is probably dragging even though you can't see it happening. And the, the term drag, and just in case anybody's listening that's really new to the terminology in fly fishing, is an unnatural drift. In other words, we want our fly to drift down the, the river as though it were not attached to the, to the tippet, just like it was clipped off of the tippet. And so even if you can't see the fly dragging, it probably is if you're not having any success. And so frequently, instead of changing to a different pattern, if I'm not getting a fish that's feeding and I'm not getting any interest out of the fish, I'll still try to do some of the things that, that I would do to overcome drag, like changing my position. A lot of times just moving a few feet and casting from a different spot, you'll be able to overcome the drag, or else you might want to lengthen your tippet or use a smaller tippet. Whatever you can do, you just have to assume that in a lot of circumstances, the flies, the reason the fish aren't taking your flies is because it's not drifting naturally. Off with that briefly, I have a question from Mick in the UK. Mike, wondering if you use furled leaders, and if so, do you have a preference in color or uh, material? And I guess uh, a corollary to that might be what when you're talking lengthening the tippet, are you talking from two feet to three? What, what kind of uh, ballpark figures are you talking? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And on the first one, I really don't like braided or furled leaders. And I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't tried any in the, the last year or two. But every time I've tried them, they, th there's two things I don't like about them. And one is they, they tend to pick up water so that when I'm making a false cast, there's more chance of little droplets of water being flicked off the leader and and into where the fish is, and they also tend to pick up more surface junk, I guess you might see. A lot of spring creeks are just covered with little, well, little tiny kinds of debris of all kinds, and, and they tend to get dirty a little more. And, and I, I, the other thing I don't like about them is they, they turn over too good. They cast really good. They're almost like an extension of the fly line. And I like the, I'm just used to, the old style of leaders with the transfer of energy to really slow everything down so that fly drops really delicately. So I still am old-fashioned, and, and I, use, I don't usually use knotted leaders. I used to for years, but I think that the modern tapers on the leaders now are very good. And just on an average, this is the way I'd probably set up a a leader for fishing on an average Spring Creek day. I, I like a fairly long butt section that's attached to my fly line, and that would be around two to three feet. And then, then I would attach to that a good 
quality tapered leader that's nine feet and whatever the leader is tapered to like if it's a nine foot five x i don't trust the tippet part that's a part of that leader when you buy a, a tapered commercial leader upper part of it is butt section and then you have the tapered belly of the leader and then the bottom of it is is a untapered section that's the tippet and i usually just try to go back and cut that off because i want to know exactly how long my tippet is and then i tie a piece of tippet material and on an average that would probably be about three feet so if i have three foot butt section and a nine foot leader that's cut back to eight feet then I've got about 11 feet, and then I have my, my tippet on there, depending. And according to the conditions, I will change the length of that tippet substantially. If it's a real calm, beautiful, clear morning, and the water's shallow and clear, and the fish are very selective, I might use a five-foot section of tippet material. But if I start getting a little bit of breeze or something, then my accuracy is going to fall completely apart. And so I'm going to cut back a little bit on the butt section, and then I'm going to cut back a lot on the tippet so that it'll turn over more abruptly. So I change a lot. I go through a lot of tippet material. Boy, when you Look, describe that, that early morning uh, fishing, uh, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds go good to, to the, me. Let's uh, go to the phone line. Yeah, let's do time. that. Who's on the line? We got somebody for a question? Okay, let's pick background. Okay, we're back we're out. And, uh, hmm? Seems like most of our listeners are on the internet, uh, from what we can tell, and the registrations we've got in. So let's see here. We've got one. I've got one here, uh, Roger. That okay, go ahead. Yeah, would be pretty interesting. All right. Um, it talks about uh, the frustration of fishing heavy hatches. And, All right. Uh, wondering what you do, Mike, to distinguish your phony imitation of the real thing. That's a tough one, and that's a common occurrence on a lot of spring creeks. And, uh, you know, essentially, I deal with that in two ways. You know, if, it, if uh, the trout established a really good feeding rhythm, which they almost always will do when there's a intense hatch on the water, then you've got to spend some time watching the fish. And I, I sometimes carry some little binoculars with me because I like to hone in on an individual fish and see if I can determine what he's feeding on. And I get asked this question all the time in the shop is, well, how do you know whether the fish is taking duns or emergers, for example? And the best way is just simply watch him. And if you see that trout rising and not taking duns, then he's, he's pretty much... Uh, you can be sure he's feeding in the film or just under the film. So you've got to make that determination first and then use a fly accordingly and then try to determine the trout's feeding rhythm. And it's, it's just a lot of casting trying to get that fly there just to, so it arrives at precisely the right time and it's got to be really accurate. So that's one thing you can do. And the second thing is sometimes you want to throw the match, the hatch, clear out the window. In fact, I have an article, uh, not an article, a chapter in my book that's called Unmatching the Hatch. And when the, when the surface gets so covered with aquatic insects, then I think you have to do better than match the hatch because you don't want your fly to just be one of the thousands that are on the water where the fish is only 
taking a few. Maybe a trout's taking one out of 50 flies that float over him. So your odds are not good if you match the hatch. So then I'd, I'd go completely away from matching the hatch, and I'd use uh, one of my four favorite dry flies. I carry them with me everywhere I go. I have a box that I call my go-to box, and I've got Royal Wolves, Parachute Adams, a renegade, which is a fly I've pretty much fished my whole life, and a, and a humpy. And I carry a box with all sizes of those flies from size 20 to about a size 10. And I generally try to stay with the size of what's on the water. Like if I, the mayflies, if they're mayflies, let's say they're size 20s, then I'd probably pick out about a size 20 royal wolf or maybe a renegade. And then I want to go through the same thing as still try to tune in on the fish's rhythm, their feeding rhythm. And a lot of times I'll pick a, a, a terrestrial, like a flying ant or a, or a beetle or even a, a small hopper, something different. We're, we're, our object is to not match the hatch, but get the fly into the fish's feeding zone about the time we think that fish is going to come up again. And, and I think that helps the fish notice your fly over the thousands of others that are coming over. When you, you run into the, the, the problem there, too, when, when you have a heavy hatch and you get a lot of fish, then you, you get that, the pods going on out there, don't you? Oh, yeah, that's especially true on, like on the Missouri. The Missouri's famous for pods of feeding, feeding fish, and we get that quite a bit on some of the lower sections of the Henry's Fork here. And the thing is, you got to you got to force yourself to do the same thing you'd do if you were quail hunting, for example. If the whole covey of quail flush, you don't want to flock shoot the covey. You want to pick one out, and generally you want to pick the one out that's going to be the best opportunity for a shot. And you do the same thing with trout. And if you got a big pot of fish, one of the objects, of course, is to catch a fish, but the second thing is to try to still have some fish rising after you hook and land that fish. So that means don't try to go and throw right out in the middle of the pod because if you do hook a fish, he'll likely spook the rest of them. So I would try to get one off the near side of the pod of fish or one off the back of the pod and then just kind of keep working your way in. And sometimes you can catch four or five fish out of a pod before you finally put them down. Don, how are you doing over there? Okay, let me just check the line, see if anybody's on. Okay. Anybody on for a question for Mike? Apparently not. I do have a question uh, from Ron in Idaho. Mike, he wonders if you're going to be conducting any sessions at the Federation of Fly Fishers Conclave in Bozeman, and if so, what subjects? I'm not going to be able to do that this year. I, uh, I've been doing a a really fun workshop at some of the conclaves uh, that's on approach and presentation. And, and I wish I could do that this year, but I've kind of been pressed back into full-time duty at our shop at Henry's Fork Anglers. We've built a new building, and we've got we've had a changeover in managers, and, and I'm kind of back for another year at least in full-time duty. I had... It started to uh, kind of back away from that day-to-day -day responsibilities, and I've been able to do more things. 
bike the conclave because I love to go there, and I'd encourage anybody that's within the Bozeman area or visiting to, to go to the conclave. It's just a tremendous experience, and, and I wish I could go, but this, this year I'm not, but I'm hopefully I can start doing that on a regular basis again after this year. Well, Mike, Henry Fork Anglers has a, a website, right? Yeah. Uh, can you, would you mind giving out the address of that website? It's uh, www.henrysforkanglers, all one word, www.henrysforkanglers.com. And also, if you would like to purchase Mike's books, I'm sure you can find them through there or on our website, askaboutflyfishing.com. At the bottom of Mike's bio page, you'll find a link to his books there. So, um, uh, good, good sources and highly recommend his books as well. And if you're up in last chance, stop in and say hello, right, Mike? You bet. And you, you can get the book in our shop as well. Or at our, we, we have a sister shop, which is South Fork Outfitters, too. My son, Sean, manages that. And uh, that's on this great tailwater. So, you know, that, there's a lot of opportunities if you're up in this part of of Idaho, and we are right in the corner, so we can fish. We fish Yellowstone Park and the Madison in Montana. We just cover a lot of good water. Question that comes from somebody I'm betting who gets to Montana. He's wondering about your favorite betas emerger pattern for a tailwater like the bighorn. Uh, yeah, when when I look at, at the little betas, I, I like these emergers that sit right in the surface film that. You know, I've watched a lot of betas emerge, and they're usually coming off in fairly cool weather. So it takes a little longer than, the, for example, pale morning duns that come out in the summer when the air temperature's warm. So when the air temperature's cool, then everything slows down a little bit, and the bugs just kind of come out a little slower, and that provides more feeding opportunity for the trout. So I like something like a little floating nymph with a little ball of fur right on the top or a little emerger that I call a halfback emerger, which just kind of has a little hump on the back. And, you know, there's there's all kinds of emergers. A lot of the merger styles have a little short wing on them and, and others have just a little kind of a bump or a clump. And, and that's the type of emerger I like for those early season betas, which hopefully if it had ever stopped snowing, we'd start seeing those. Okay, we're running out of time here. So, uh, first of all, I want to thank Mike. Uh, we've enjoyed having you on the show. Tremendous. Uh, and, and thank you for your valuable time and teaching us more about fly fishing. We hope you'll come back again sometime and join us on another show, if that would be agreeable. So we'll say goodbye to Mike. And when we return, we're going to select that lucky fly fisher who's going to be winning Mike's autographed copy of Spring Creeks. So stay tuned for just a brief minute, and we'll be right back. And, Don, can you bring a word from our sponsor. You've been listening to one of the finest and most thoughtful fly fishers in the country, an outstanding member of the Federation of Fly Fishers. Mike Lawson typifies the philosophy and the generosity that pervades the membership of every club in every state across the country. And this is not just in support of trout and salmon fisheries, but also bass, bluegills, other warm water species, as well as stripers, tarpon, bonefish, and others in the saltwater fisheries. Federation counts among its membership talented individuals dedicated to each of these fisheries. Consider joining a fishing club near you. Become a member of the Federation of Fly Fishers. Begin a journey of learning, of protecting, and of enhancing the sport. 
For more information, go to www.fedflyfishers.org. On our next broadcast on Wednesday, April 5th, we're going to have Barry Reynolds, same time, same place, and he will be answering questions about fly fishing for pike and muskie. It's going to be an exciting show, so don't miss that. Don? Well, you might want to know about uh, how we do this uh, when we're selecting the winner for Mike's book, Spring Creeks. Basically, we have a simple computer program that ran one from our registration database. And the winner is Eric Bellwood in Oregon. Eric, we'll contact you after the show to give you information on how to receive your gift. And there it is. Congratulations. Congratulations, Eric. We'd like to thank the Federation of Fly Fishers for sponsoring our show tonight. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Have a good night. That's it. Good night, everyone. Good night.